The Dalai Lama once said that today, more than ever before, life must be characterized by a sense of universal responsibility, not only nation to nation and human to human, but also human to other forms of life. Join me in conversation with some of the world's most creative thinkers to explore the importance of ethics to this responsible decision-making in today's technologically infused world. Artists, entrepreneurs, scientists, journalists, academics, and beyond navigate the gray, the blend of right and wrong, of opportunities and risks on all sides of our most important challenges, whether gene editing, civilian space travel, or artificial intelligence. They also probe the age-old and more ethically black and white behaviors, such as sexual misconduct, human trafficking, and life-threatening inequality. Our guests endeavor to transcend religious, political, national, and ethnic perspectives, but recognize the inevitable biases we all bring. The term ethics can make us uncomfortable. At the Ethics Incubator, we confront the E-word head-on. It may be inconvenient or even unclear, but ethical conundrums underpin almost every headline and affect almost every human choice. With truth under threat and the boundaries of humanity blurring, I believe that ethical decision-making tethers us to our humanity. As always, we welcome your thoughts. It is an honor and a pleasure to welcome today Earthring Cousins, one of the world's foremost leaders in food and food security, hunger and food systems. Earthring served as the executive director of the United Nations World Food Program from 2012 to 2017. And most recently, she has been a visiting scholar at the Stanford Center on Food and the Environment and founder of a new organization called Food Systems for the Future. I meet Earthrin by Zoom as we're still on shelter at home due to COVID-19. And we're also facing a remarkable food challenge in the United States where many hardworking Americans are finding themselves in line for food in ways that they never thought they would and unable to feed their families in ways they never thought they would. First of all, Earthrin, a very warm welcome to the Ethics Incubator. I really appreciate your taking the time today. Let me start with how did you come to have such an interest in food and food security and hunger that landed you as executive director of the World Food Program and in your more recent adventures? Well, thank you very much for this opportunity to spend time with you today, Susan. I, I appreciate very much the work that you've done with this podcast and those that you've interviewed in the past. So I feel quite honored by this opportunity. How did I come to this? I, I, I often say I was born into the food security, food systems, nutrition security world. My dad was a chef by profession and my grandmother owned small restaurants. And we fed more people for free who didn't have money than we had paying customers, which is why neither my my grandmother or my dad made a lot of money doing what they did. My mom was a social worker for the city of Chicago, and my grandfather was a farm laborer, slash my, my, the word my mother uses, but he was a sharecropper for all intents and purposes. And all, of, all of your genes. All of my genes, both sides of the family. Uh, it was, it's always been about food. 
about farming, about ensuring that people have access to the food that they need, understanding why in Washington, Georgia, they no longer farmed cotton but planted trees because of the impact that it had on soils and how that affects the future generation's ability to plow land that for many generations fed America. And so all of those issues were issues that I grew up with around my dining room table. And so between that, between the issues around food and the issues around politics, I made a career out of it, of ensuring that not only do people have access to food, but that we create a food system that allows for the purchase of food, as well as the safety nets that are necessary for those who cannot purchase food to have access to nutritious food. And so every opportunity that I have had in my career has been in this space, working on these and other related issues. So just before we get into some specifics, can you talk just briefly about how the World Food Program works and then what your more recent project is? The United Nations World Food Program is the largest humanitarian organization in the world. And the food program when I was there was feeding about 80 million people per month. They're now feeding 100 million people per month. And in addition to providing the food assistance, which is what historically the organization was known for doing, they also provide access to either cash or vouchers that when there's food in the marketplace allows people to purchase food. And we can talk about some of that, why that's important as we get into this conversation. And and in addition to providing the food, the access to food, WFP is also responsible for serving as a logistics arm for the entire humanitarian system. And what that means is that all of the tools that are necessary in Ebola, the medical equipment and other humanitarian environments, it's the tents, it's the pots and pans, all of those things, WFP often warehouses and actually moves by boat, by plane, by air for, uh, for the other actors across the response system. So it's the food and it's the how do we get the tools that are necessary to the people who are assisting those who are in need. And the connection between the food and the rest of what it takes to deal with some of these humanitarian challenges. There's so much fighting for our attention, even pre-COVID, pre-U.S. election season, etc. And we don't hear, in my view, enough concern about food in places like the United States and Europe. They tend to be places where we think about other things when we think about international aid. We think some about food, but what are um, the Westerners, so to speak, missing about the world food crisis and about what our role should be in resolving it? Well, thank you so much for that question. And that gets me right into the work that I am doing now. With my research teams at Stanford, support from the Rockefeller Foundation and a a number of other organizations, we stood up a new nonprofit last year called Food Systems for the Future. And looking at how do we identify market enterprises, actors across the food system that can, by by investing in their development and growth, assist in ensuring that the food system meets the needs, not just of the the affluent, but also of low-income and underserved populations. Why is that important? What you're seeing today with COVID is a food system in the United States and a food system in Europe. It's efficient, 
but it's not agile. And so what that meant for us in the United States is that we basically have two pipelines of food. We have producers who produce food for institutions, schools, restaurants, hotels, and we have food that we have producers that produce food for retail sell. When there was a disruption in the demand system, in the demand on the food system for the institutions, you suddenly had food that had no place to go. We saw these awful videos in the news about, you know, farms of just, you know, acres and acres of celery, for example, that the farmers were saying they were just going to let rot. Or even as, as, as a, a colleague of mine said in the dairy industry, if you are providing milk by the truckload, there's no place for that farmer to send that milk if the institutional system is shut down. And so you saw farmers dumping milk because... Right no agility in the system and the the other the, the other uh phenomena that further complicates the system the the uh, demand is that in the system that provides for retail you suddenly had 30 million americans without income who couldn't afford to buy food anymore so, right, so demand is drying up all over the place you have food in a, and you have food going to waste because it has no pipeline to go through, and you have a pipeline without customers because those who, as you said, never thought they'd find themselves in a food line suddenly can no longer afford food for their families. And so, what the U.S. government and you saw the same in, in, in European countries um, was what they did was created the opportunities for nonprofits to purchase food from farmers and then to create boxes and distribute that food to those who couldn't purchase, who, who don't have the financial resources to purchase food. But we were months into this crisis before that occurred. And so you saw food loss, you saw people, you witnessed people going hungry, and it laid bare all of the inadequacies in our food system and the things we must fix in order to build back better. So it is about business continuity, assisting those farmers to ensure that they have the support that is necessary so they are not required to cull their, their livestock. And if they are, how do they rebuild that livestock um, in order to support their future livelihood? It's about creating the safety nets, as we saw, that allowed people the access to food, but also providing them with the cash that would give them the ability to purchase food. So all of those things have been happening, but they can't go on forever. And right. so, and, and think about... Think about a developing country, a low-income country, a country in crisis that is suffering from the COVID effect, that right. is required to have shutdowns, but they can't afford the business continuity to invest in business continuity for their farmers or the livelihoods, the life support that is necessary for those who are on shelter-in-place orders who don't no longer have the financial means because they can't go to work to feed their children. I love the way you describe this in terms of systems, but also logistics. 
And, and that word agility is so critical. And in, in my ethics work generally, resilience, agility is a big part of that, needs to be embedded in all of our systems because the ethical crises come when our systems like food systems or healthcare systems don't have that agility. We certainly saw it with ventilators. We saw it in ways that, again, we just never should ever be seeing in places like the Europe and the United States. Let me ask you a slightly different question. There's a lot of concern around labels these days. So things like fair trade. What is your thinking? Does it actually help if we buy fair trade? Is it helping the farmers in other parts of the world? Or are all of these labels and systems and, and organizations uh, creating problems that we may not be aware of? Well, they very much help. The reality is nothing changes without demand. And market actors are not going to change their systems if it does not, if, if consumers don't make a demand. And so if consumers are demanding healthier food, you're now seeing food with less sugar, less salt. Uh, if consumers are demanding fairness to farm workers, they're supporting that demand through how they spend their dollars, affecting both the retailer as well as the wholesaler and all the way down the food chain. That changes behavior. And so what is, what is required is that we as consumers educate ourselves about what we eat, where we eat, where it came from, and who's actually farming and harvesting that food. And then we can make, and people are always asking me, how do I make a difference in the food system? And I say, how you spend your dollar is how you cast your vote. I love that because when I interviewed Norman Lear, he said that he went all over the United States before the 2016 election with a copy of the Declaration of Independence that he bought. And he was on a campaign to get all Americans to vote. And what he put it exactly as you did, he said, every decision you make matters. Every vote matters. Every time you get out and speak your mind, every plastic water bottle matters. And I love that. And, that, and it's, it's not just a question of people who spend a lot of money on food. Everybody spends some money on food, pretty much. And organizations do. And I think, you know, as you talked about the, the importance of organizations, the restaurants, the hotels, all of those players sort of came front and center into our living rooms through the news reporting in this COVID crisis. And all of a sudden, we realized how much power they actually have on the demand side. Let me switch gears and ask you a little bit about something different. We've been in a crisis in the United States for hundreds of years over discrimination, inequality, social justice. And obviously, as you know well, it's come to the fore yet again. And it's one of those things that, with great humility, for many years, I've been asking myself as somebody who focuses on ethics, what's it going to take? But can you talk a little bit about how these issues of discrimination, inequality, and social justice intersect with food? And also, just more broadly, how you see this particular juncture and this, this what's it going to take question? We know that food and hunger, one of the factors that, that drive hunger is poverty lack of access to income. And we also know that if I'm just thinking about businesses in the food system, very few of those are operated by or owned by and driving jobs for an economic investment in the black community. Why? Because people aren't interested, 
but because most black businesses can't access the capital to grow business. And, and, and whether that's a food business, a restaurant, uh, a food a preparation facility, or a product development facility. You don't have actors in the space because of lack of access to capital and the other resources that are necessary to support the development of business. And so we lack the capacity to create the intergenerational wealth that has been the hallmark of the United States in that every parent knew that if I invested and I worked, my child would do better than me. That mm -hmm. hasn't been true in the black community because of lack of access to capital, lack of access to the opportunity to own your own home, the challenges of our criminal justice system and what that has done to the incarceration of black men in the community and the effect that has on economic opportunity, prosperity, and the development of financial resources. And so these, and you ask, what will it take? What makes me excited about this time when people stand in the street and say Black Lives Matter is that it's not just Black people standing exactly. in the street. Matter because we've always talked about, and then I'm I grew up in a family where the the motto was pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And the reality is many people don't have bootstraps. And unless you have people who control those bootstraps saying Black Lives Matter. We're going to invest differently. We're going to provide cap capital differently. We're going to address the issues and witness the challenges of a police system that is inequitably implemented across our cities. Then you don't get change. But we're now seeing a different voices. And we're, we're even more as importantly, not just are the voices differently, it's not just young people standing together. You have the corporate operators, you have billionaires, you have investors. And what seeing here, seeing equity investors saying that they are not investing in companies that are not working to create economic opportunity in uh, the, for for black people across the country um it's an, a different ballgame and well, that's, I, I, mean, I agree with you that it's very exciting and uh, first of all just on the investor uh, side of things i think it's incredible how quickly it has gone from a real focus on for example fossil fuels and arms into other areas that affect everyone like guns for example and now into this issue of discrimination and social justice and inequality and my plea to everybody who's doing a lot of talking is let's do some acting now let's i mean this comes down to the decision making this comes down to are you willing to make some tough decisions in order to sort of follow through because it's the people that you mentioned at the end that have the power and that have the capital to, to make a difference, to circle back to your very first point about capital allocation. Let me ask you this. Do you have a moment in your career where you thought, this is the most difficult ethical conundrum I've ever faced, and I just have no idea what to do? <laughs> oh, I've had a number of those moments. Um, <laughs> um, you know, that's a, the way you phrase that question is quite important because I faced a number of conundrums and points in my career 
where my decisions were based on what would some would deem an ethical challenge. You know, I grew up a Catholic school girl, okay? <laughs> and I'm one of those households where what was, what was taught was how my family lived. You do the right thing. And so I've made decisions where some would have said I was too cautious. I always stay on the same, on the right side of the line. I, I smile because early in my career, I had a very powerful politician say to me, Ertherin, you can be powerful and seek to make a difference and through policy change and working with elected offices, or you can be rich. And it's very difficult to do both, if not impossible, and stay out of jail and stay on the <laughs> side. And uh, I've always lived my life that way. I don't make, you know, making decisions where I am making a decision about how my organization will invest and I have a possibility of some personal gain, then I don't make that decision. I don't. It's right here, um, so where your true north comes from, because some people aren't really sure. I mean, they, they you know, the leaders I'm interviewing, they, they all really want to do the right thing, so to speak. But you clearly have sort of a, in your upbringing a true north in your Catholic school education. But can you give an example of a time where you just genuinely didn't know what to do or whether after the fact with 2020 hindsight, you said, you know, maybe I should have gone a different route? Yeah, I can give you an example. I um, was, when I was executive director of the World Food Program, we were running out of money for the, uh, the, the hunger response uh, activities in Syria. And I had a donor um, that I expected to receive support from at the very last minute say no. And I had kept feeding people. And I've kept feeding people even when I knew I didn't have enough money to pay the bills. And some would have said that was inappropriate and verging on fraud on my part. But it was a decision that I made knowing the world would come through. And it wasn't probably the right decision to make because the world didn't come through. And so what it required me to do then was at the very last minute to just turn off the food and make an announcement to the world that I was, we were no longer going to feed people in Syria. And some would have said if I had made the right decision, which was cutting the food in half so that I could have made it last longer, then I could have fed people longer. But by making that decision to keep feeding people, which I believed was the right thing to do, I put my organization in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. But at the, at the same time, I then went to the world and told them what I was doing and made a plea for people around the world instead of government. 98% of the resources for WFP come from government. Right, as a UN organization, right. And so I made a plea then to people for help. We did a, a, a campaign called A Dollar for Syria. And it was a multimedia campaign on the internet. Uh, we got support from news stations across the globe covered our challenge. And what happened as a result of that was people made demands on their governments to help us. And, and so did the governments come through in the end? They 
did. Okay. Well, for, that was a very clever strategy. I have to say, I, I very much appreciate your transparency. And, you know, when we have these decisions, you give a, a fantastic example because it's one in which human life is at stake and human dignity was at stake. And it's all very easy for somebody to say, you should have made a different decision, but it's not their life or their dignity that's at stake. And one of the most difficult questions, and, and honestly, I face this in much of the sort of the current environment, is to really think about how can we put ourselves in someone else's shoes? And I'm always saying, you know, how can we consider those who will be the most adversely affected by our decision, we make the decision. And those who would have been most adversely affected were the Syrian people, not the various other stakeholders. Uh, but it's very, very hard to do. And certainly in, in the current climate and all the discussion about race, you know, many of us are coming out this with great humility and just trying very hard to understand how we can be sure that we're doing the right listening, that we're doing the right reading, that we're doing, trying to understand what is really at stake for the people who are most adversely affected. So I think, I think that's a tremendous example and I, and I really appreciate your transparency. Just a couple final questions, if I may. Your current environment is called Food Systems for the Future. Is that a project that ordinary citizens can get involved in, or is that a project that is for just government or institutional actors? Well, we are looking for partners and investors, and I was just on the phone today with one of our partner organizations that is, that's working with um, some of our very nascent businesses, so we're business people who want to serve as mentors for minority businesses, we need those, okay. uh, as well as we need funders. That's our the that's our, our 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 critical and crucial hurdle to overcome is identifying funders to support the work of FSF. So we are hopeful that we will identify all of the different capacities that we need, and we invite anyone who'd like more information to go to www.fsfinstitute.net to find more information to reach out to us and and talk to us we fixing a broken food system ensuring that we develop companies that can grow businesses that not only provide access to nutritious food but provide more economic opportunity for communities that are underserved both here at home as well as abroad we need you we want you because we can't this is work that uh, no one organization or individual can perform alone. Right. And I just think it's so important. My own work is about democratizing ethics and sort of making society's biggest ethics problems understandable to ordinary citizens and, in, and inviting the views of ordinary citizens. And I can't think of anything more fundamental than food and getting um, more ordinary citizens involved in the debates. My final question for you is, other than food, what is the ethical challenge that we face as a society today? that worries you most? The ethical challenge that worries me most is the environment and climate. Our inability to recognize that we can't ignore 
the changing, uh, our changing environment and the effect that that will have on us and our children keeps me up as night as much as the lack of access to hunger, because that is directly related to our ability to, our, to continue to feed ourselves. The changing environment affects the agricultural productivity of land. It affects the access to water. It affects the, our ability to ensure that our children can have the access to the natural resources that are necessary for them to sustain themselves in the future. And so that is an issue that I fear uh, that we as a nation and, un and unfortunately um, as, a, as a, a partner in the global community where we need to lead as opposed to watch and wait uh, because we'll get to a point when the life that we, we, you think we've seen an impact on our life by COVID and the health, we haven't begun to see the type of impact that a changing environment will have on our lifestyles and our lives and the economic impact that and the toll that environment and the environmental change can take on not just the countries over there, but on us here at home in the United States as well. Well, and I think if there's one thing that COVID has taught us is that there's no longer sort of us over there and us here at home. Everything affects everything. And as you know, as we've seen today, I mean, the food system is shockingly so. But COVID knows no boundaries, and, and COVID knows no boundaries, you know, even in socioeconomically and otherwise. Uh, and as you say, the climate isn't going to be better just even for people who can afford more or who think that they live in a sort of a, you know, a country that doesn't look like it's as exposed to others. Arthurin, it's been fantastic to see you again and to speak to you, especially via Zoom uh, in this shelter at home and, and really important mask wearing time. So, so it's really nice to see you and I very much appreciate your time and very best of luck with food systems for the future. Thank you very much. And I look forward to our continuing engagement and I'm looking forward to the opportunity to get back out to Stanford again um, and see, not just to see friends, but to hopefully continue to be a part of the Stanford community. So I look forward to our uh, continued engagement, not just over Zoom, but in person in the future. Thank you. Absolutely. So